I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Noise, the podcast series from PR Week. I'm Frankie Oliver, your host and founder of New Society. And today I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief of PR Week, Danny Rogers. Hello, Frankie. And our special guest, Shiraz Gulsha, founder of People Like Us, a nonprofit campaigning for fairer pay and inclusion of people from any heritage in the communications industry. And Barbara Phillips, Chair of the Race and Ethnicity Equity Board at the PRCA and founder of Brownstone Communications. Good afternoon to you both. Good afternoon. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Shiraz and Barbara have joined us today to discuss the PR Week Pay Gap Report that was released last week. And I'm going to hand over to Shiraz now as he's going to give us the key highlights of what I believe is is this year's second report. So Shiraz, over to you. Please tell us more. Thank you. So this is our second year of running this pay gap study. And if you'd asked me last year how many entries we'd have uh, for this year, I would have honestly so confidently said we'd have more than double. Uh, On the one hand, it is pretty heartbreaking to see the number of entries has fallen. And I suppose the elephant in the room is that, again, no large agencies have come forward. But saying that, there's a immense pride for the agencies that have entered. And I know their staff and the brands associated with them will too. Um, and many of them are big hitters in the award scenes, such as the Manifests and Hope and Glories of This World and Pretty Green. Um, and now they can proudly say they have, for us, um, the most important accolade of them all. Um, I suppose overall, um, it's encouraging to see the level of representation of comms professionals from diverse backgrounds has gone up at all levels from last year. It means we're definitely on the right track as an industry. And from those agencies that have entered year on year, that statures has either been progress in closing the, the gap somewhat, um, or it has remained roughly the same, which is which is good to see. Um, and a handful of agencies um, that have seen small dips um, have sort of attributed this to much larger agencies hiring aggressively. Um, so that would explain the the small um, fall year on year they would have seen. But overall, from what we've seen, the results are, are looking really promising. So I'm sorry to hear, obviously, about the dip. How much of a dip was there in terms of entries this year? 
Um, so last year we had, I believe, just over 30. Um, this year we have uh, 20 agencies entering, um, which is yeah quite surprising for all, all of us that have been involved behind the scenes. Um, for, for us, we, we think this is the most important accolade and of them all. I think it's really important for um, organizations to hold themselves accountable publicly um, and to see that um, fall year on year, um, it, it, is, it is slightly disappointing. Yes, well, absolutely. We definitely need that call to the industry to make sure that they submit next year. How does that compare, Barbara, to potentially what you've also seen in the PRCA through your census study? Well, yes, there has been a um, a falling of the the amount that um, ethnically diverse practitioners um, are being paid. Um, and that has fallen year on year. There are more people in the industry from a diverse background, but you know it's something that, that Shiraz and I probably you know will harp on about is is there always seem to be junior level. They always seem to be entry level and not a senior level where you know the talent is there. So I'd say yeah, it mirrors that in terms of people are 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 declaring you know what their ethnicity is. People are agencies are taking part in some in some way. But the state of affairs hasn't really improved, if I'm brutally honest. And looking at the, so you're saying it's, it's a predominance, more a junior level. I'm sort of thinking, I know we're not so much talking about gender today, but there was this amazing statistic around for a while that there was sort of a, an evacuation of women around the age of 35 in our industry and therefore kind of not necessarily breaking the glass ceiling. What kind of trends are you seeing at similar ages or similar levels or reasons why there, you know, there's less sort of acceleration to maybe board level? I suppose, um, anecdotally speaking, so in our organization, we speak to people at all levels from diverse backgrounds all the time. And uh, the challenge some of them face is they, they hit a certain level, whether it's in agency land, it's account director, associate, and they, they suddenly hit a ceiling and they can't seem to progress. And uh, what we're finding is people either get so frustrated, leave the industry altogether, or try their best to, to, to find a role in-house where there seems to be less of an issue in progressing quickly among the senior ranks. So I, I think that's a bigger challenge. There, there, there aren't very many leaders in agency land that have sort of naturally gone through the ranks and ended up at director, board level. Um, all people are having to basically start their own agencies to, to do that, which is a, which is really difficult. And uh, I suppose uh, the state, the industry is in at the moment. But there are, of course, ex- exceptions. Um, I think one that comes to mind immediately is Manifest. Um, they have the brilliant Julian, who for me and probably for a lot of people in this call is a, is a shining star in the industry. And I think it gives people that look like me a lot of hope that someday that we can reach board level at a top international agency too. And this is Julian Bobo, who I believe is the um, creative, creative director. director. Yeah. That's right. And Barbara, would you, do you concur with Shiraz's comments? I do. And, you know, my percept, my perspective is also always a little bit more, I don't know, qualitative or anecdotal or on people's lived experiences in terms of um, they do, I agree, you, you know, certain people will hit a block and they'll hit, hit a level. But then I always ask of leaders, the leaders that I work with in agencies and not so much in-house, but agencies, you know, what does your board, your leaders, you know, how does it need to look? Because as far as I can see, if you did a blind analysis of people's talent and qualifications and experience, notwithstanding lots of people from ethnic 
backgrounds don't get to work on the big accounts, but that's another podcast. Um, you know, notwithstanding the leveler, there's no reason why they shouldn't be in your boardroom. So I, I like to ask, what is it you think a leadership team, how do you think a leadership team looks? Because it seems to get right down to people's perception of what leaders look like. How do they look? You know, they don't look, they don't come from this background. They don't speak this, this way. They don't have a certain look. And I think we need to really focus on another area that I always you know, speak about is the desire to change because people want the outcome, but they don't want to do the process. They don't want to do the work, but they'd like to be more representative. Barbara, can I ask, um, you, you sort of hint at why you think maybe this isn't happening. It, it could be genuine reluctance to change by by these businesses or it could be something else it could be you're sort of implying that they don't feel that these people fit within the business is that is that right culturally yes i do i absolutely i'll stand by that culturally because there's a very set idea in our industry of what culture what good culture successful culture what clients want to see how you behave you know, and that you can see by how people socialize, you know, how they work, you know, the long hours is like a badge of honor if you work 90 hours a week. I mean, that that isn't for everyone. So I think, yes, I'd agree with that. Yes. I'd, I'd also jump in. I, I, I think um, through my lived experience and lots of people I've interacted with is uh, often when you're the only person that looks like you in a room, it can be seen as you're disruptive. I've worked at some of the very best agencies and I've often felt as an outsider, um, I've had to work twice as hard as everyone else. But I I think um, a great leader will realize, actually, this person has a lived experience that we know nothing about, can bring tremendous amount of value to the team and creativity and thinking about things in a new way. I've seen it happen to to colleagues around me where they're sort of pushed out because, as Barbara says, they're not the, you know, white middle class Oxbridge type that's that's doing particularly well, has been in the agency for a while, has worked in a certain circle of agencies. So I think that that's what differentiates a really good leader is like bringing new people to the fold and really working to their strengths because there's a tremendous amount of benefit from having that diverse team um, from innovation to creativity and just team morale. I think having a breadth of people together in one room, it really is a beautiful thing. It isn't. Just to tag on to the end of that, it's I think some of the work that we, you know, we describe our leaders having that you know, conversation, if you like, with themselves in terms of being brave enough or being, you know, admitting their limitations, possibly to say, okay, I don't feel comfortable because that person doesn't have my background or doesn't have this background, but I'm going to go with it anyway because I think it could lead to something really good, as Shiraz has described. But there's just, you know, a moment where, where I'm sure leaders just stop themselves because it might be too hard or it might be, you know, too disruptive in the, in the wrong way. But there is a conversation you have because it's, it's, it's a process and it's not a click of the fingers or a tick of the box. And is there some way that um, these bosses of agencies can be encouraged to be braver and and take these steps? Is it is it a case of having some consultancy, having some support to be, you know, to take a bit more risk, perhaps from their point of view? 
I think it's all of the above, certainly. And and I wouldn't really deem it as a risk without being an obstreperous. It's not, I wouldn't say it was a risk. No, in their eyes, perhaps it is. Yes, any more than any new employee, because you never quite know until they start working. So, you know, which is why you might have them, you know, on, on a, a short-term lease or a short-term contract, et cetera. But um, yes, it's definitely utilising organisations like Reeve, like people like us, Taylor Bennett Foundation. There's loads of people, black UK companies, Blackcoms network, definitely having experts. And I think Shiraz has mentioned before when we've spoken, don't put the onus, don't put the focus and the responsibility on any people of colour in your organisation. It's not their role to do it. It really is the leadership role. Um, when I say about hogging all the, the limelight, when I've spoken, when I've worked with agencies, they've said, you know, what can I do? I'm white, you know. Isn't, isn't it best that, you know, the black or Asian people handle this? And it's absolutely not, unless you're handing power and the decision-making over to them, then great. But since, as soon as you know that's not going to happen, it really is down to you. So to your point, it's yes, utilise everything, but still understand that it might not be comfortable and it might be on your plan of this is how we make our agency successful. But, you know, that's called creativity and innovation. So it shouldn't be that difficult. Have you noticed any difference between corporate versus consumer leaning agencies because I'm I'm just thinking myself of sort of middle tranche of creative consumer agencies I feel like I see culturally more inclusion and more diversity in those sorts of agencies than I do in maybe more the corporate leaning public affairs bigger agencies there seems a bit of an industry divide there would you would you agree personally I uh- the work that the work that I've done with agencies, I've done a lot of work in house personally, you know, my own experience. But I have done some work with a couple of public affairs um, agencies, and they openly admit that it's very, very white, and it's very, very male, and it's very white middle, you know, middle aged male. So absolutely, I think we all acknowledge that that's what it is. And I think again, the onus is back on those leaders in those agencies to really, you know, open up. And, and as we always advise, make the culture welcoming to everyone. If, it's, if you have a psychologically safe culture, it doesn't really matter if there are no black people and no Asians and not a lot of women, because eventually you'll attract a more diverse workforce because it's a great culture and a great place to work and people can thrive. So I think the divide is absolutely there, but it's what you do about it. There's division everywhere. It's what, what do you do about it? I find it very interesting that um, public affairs has got that sort of culture because, of course, we now have a a government with, I don't think, any white male uh, people in the the key ministerial roles. And obviously, public affairs is about dealing with government and politicians. So obviously, the public affairs industry is falling behind politics in that sense. I mean, essentially, there are brown, black and brown faces, and that's fantastic. But it's really, what are their policies? What are their ideologies? They're just the same as you can swap, you know, Rishi Sunak and Kwasi Kwarteng and then go back to any Gordon Brown. You know, they're all men. They're all um, Chancellor of the Exchequer. But, you know, you need to look at their policies and their ideologies, not necessarily the fact that, you know, Kwasi Kwarteng is, is a black man. And this is where it's a great example in our government when you do the diversity without the inclusion. Because their policies aren't terribly, we've seen that, they've tanked the pound. Their policies aren't inclusive, but yes, it's representative. That's why it's diversity and inclusion, not just diversity. Spot on. I think whilst the cabinet is um, on paper very representative, there is that piece that's missing is inclusivity. Um, like the, the recent t- tax cuts uh, are appalling, really. It's like the, the lowest 
and socioeconomic backgrounds and are ethnic minorities in the UK, and they're going to be hit the hardest and they have very little support and we're crying out for. Um, and I suppose that's why we're working with PR Week um, to make race pay gap reporting uh, like a regular regular occurrence. And I suppose more widely, we're lobbying for the government to make race pay gap reporting mandatory in UK law, just like it is for the gender pay gap. I think, uh, yeah, it's not really benefiting the wider ethnic minority population at the moment. Is um, yeah, these latest tax cuts, for instance, and we know the the cost of living crisis is also hitting ethnic minority communities the hardest too. Going back to what you said about being psychologically safe, I think that's such an interesting point. Um, you know, and definitely something that I've experienced as a woman. And you know, being a senior leader, you know, it's amazing how you only have to stand in a reception for about ten seconds to <laughs> figure out whether a culture is psychologically safe. It's it's just there, isn't it? You can breathe it, you can feel it, you know it, and you can it, you just absolutely know the sort of place that you are. How does that ever really change without leadership having some level of self-awareness about that culture? And maybe that leadership feels comfortable in that culture and then therefore doesn't see a need to change it. I mean, how, how is it possible to actually address systemically that situation? I, I think being a good ally is incredibly important. Um, I think like leadership is obviously a must and they, they need to be forward thinking and provide training and resources for staff and particularly management who are looking after and sort of managing staff from diverse backgrounds and knowing or like the challenges that they might be facing or and like even small things in the workplace like uh, microaggressions and um and things like that i, I think without that you, you'll you'll really struggle to change the the culture of, of an agency and even through my lived experiences um there were points in my career where i was I felt so alone and pretty inadequate. Like I considered leaving the industry altogether, but it took one person to sort of take me under their wing, recognize my strengths um, and sort of play to them um, rather than lots of other people thinking, oh, this guy's disruptive. He doesn't know these things. Um, so yeah, I, I think allyship is absolutely key. And I think recognizes the challenges different people face is, uh, is hugely important and empathy is, uh, is, is, is of paramount importance. Yeah, I mean, absolutely echo that. I mean, I spent more time in-house and like Shiraz, I looked for desperate ways to leave communications industry so many times because it was so awful. And one of my saving graces was when I was inside the comms team, which is really appalling because I was usually the only black person there and then the only black woman in a maybe a field of you know men but I could go outside the comms kind of ecosystem and look at the rest of the organization and there might be some great people in accounts or you know doing something else that's not comms that you could you know at least get a bit of empathy with if you like so absolutely that makes a difference but then back to leaders again it's you know I think there's a saying I can't I can't don't know who to attribute to um but it, the saying is your culture is the worst behavior that you permit in your organization. So it's not the best of you, it's the worst of you is, a, is the true um, sign of your culture. So I think leaders need to decide, I think it goes for that question, you know, what do they want the culture to be? Absolutely important. I think sometimes leaders forget to um, look a little bit outside of their bubble. I mean, another example that I use is when we're talking about psychological safety is I say, okay, you're not sure what psychological safety is and what it might look like and how it might look in your organization. Then I'll often say, okay, would you send your you know, favorite elderly aunt or your grandmother to work in your organization right now, the way it is untouched? Would you send somebody who was a little bit vulnerable 
that you know them? Would you send them to work in your organization? If you have to stop and think, then it's not where it should be. You know, that's a place, if you really don't know where to start, that is a place to start because everyone should be able to thrive, whatever their background is, you know, neurodiversity, diverse diversity and if you can honestly say i'm not sure if i send my granny to work in our office then you need to start looking at why so in terms of actually then driving that change and you know because i just i just question the ability for certain organizations to have that level of self-awareness and until there's maybe that mandatory reporting as you've mentioned shiraz it's impossible to really kind of get that parity where people really are identifying that there is an issue that they need to confront that that maybe they haven't understood how likely is it that we'll we'll get to a situation where there is mandatory reporting can that can that happen well, it's something i'm sort of putting all of our energy to at the moment I mean, we, we think it's incredibly important and i think lots of people in parliament feel the same way i mean just like the gender pay gap reporting which was made mandatory in the uk in 2017 there are countless studies to show over time it has it is gradually starting to close the gender pay gap, perhaps not at the rate that we'd, we'd all like it to, but it is making a difference. And I think without that, I mean, we, we're essentially fighting in the dark at the moment. We, we have no idea what the scale of the issue is right now. Even the PR week doing the study with us is brilliant. We get a snapshot of the, of the, of the agencies that are willing to share their data. And even in that small bubble, like there are challenges, but I think they have to be credited um, for, for their... I suppose their trailblazing attitude of being open. I mean, we have no idea what the what the wider scale of the the PR industry is. Like, none of PR Week's top twenty rated agencies have entered this study. So, like, it goes to show, like, we don't we have no idea what the scale of the issue is. I was just going to say there are independent agencies in that top twenty that shouldn't really have an issue that they they. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today really should be entering, shouldn't they? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, to be honest, if, if I was um, a staff member working in these agencies, I, I would ask questions of, of the leadership and of the board and essentially asking why. Why, why aren't we able to share this data? Is, is there something we've got to hide? Um, and this is, obviously, they're all phenomenal agencies. The work they deliver, the awards they receive, and what they do around the industry is huge. There's so many incredible leaders in that space. But I, I would be asking questions about why it is. So what we're, what we're doing with the study is we're not calling anyone out, where it's, it's a snapshot in time, it's essentially designed for us to improve year on year and uh, to know what the lay of the land is. And I think workers deserve to know where they stand. If, if they're suddenly being, if you're being paid less as a woman or as an ethnic minority um, in comms, you, I feel like 
it's only fair to know where you stand with a company. I think you guys have done a great job in pointing out some of the challenges and we've we've sort of criticized a number of agencies for not entering their figures. But quite rightly, you are praising the agencies who have contributed information to this. And um, thank you to all those agencies that have. On the positive side, were there things in what people entered that encouraged you about what certain agencies were doing in terms of diversity? And can you give some examples of, of good practice? Absolutely. So I, th- I think uh, an agency that stood out for me was Pretty Green. Um, they've thought, I suppose, more widely about what, whilst they've measured pay gaps year on year, and um, they've performed really well in the study. Um, I, I think more holistically, they've looked at how they operate as a business. So looking at which suppliers they're working with, for example, photographers, videographers, event staff, um, and whether those are from diverse backgrounds, and they're actively seeking new people to work with, and rather and kind of almost shaking off people they've used over the years purely because of inertia. Um, also looking at influencers. Influencer market in the commerce is, is huge. Um, and um, there's been so many studies to show influencers from black and Asian mixed race backgrounds are, are either being not being selected or not being paid. So it's really brilliant to see um, agencies like Pretty Green really prioritizing and really considering influencers from a breadth of backgrounds, um, which is hugely important um, and representative. And I, and I know the brands they're working with will appreciate that. Um, and finally, is talent. Um, they've also really um, looked at and sort of, yeah, really thought about the talent they're working with on uh, big PR campaigns. Uh, and again, it, it, it is fantastic to see like they're branching out to different talent and it's it's reflecting well on them. They're obviously doing really well in the industry awards scene and delivering some fantastic work. I think the, the campaigns they referenced was around Pantene. Um, so yeah, so I think Pretty Green thinking holistically about the entire business rather than just staff um, and how they're being paid, which is obviously very important. But yeah, h- how it operates overall, which is really good to see. Barbara, any agencies that impressed you with certain things? Do you know, I don't want to be the Debbie Downer, but um, I'd say on a positive note, I think, again, praise for all of the um, the agencies that came back for more year two, because we know from when we launched our ethnicity pay gap um, in 2020, we know how difficult it was. We know we had some difficult conversations and it's quite exposing. So and people worried about clients' views, you know, people leaving, et cetera. So we definitely praise on those who came back. And I say I'd like to definitely, without naming any one agency, all the agencies who are taking part in the ethnicity side of the pay gap reporting piece, because obviously that's what I'm most concerned with, are recognizing that with the cost of living crisis, that it's having more of a detrimental impact than before. Because when we looked at the census figures from last year, I think it was something like eight and a half thousand pounds different that black and Asian people of color were being being be paid less than their counterparts. That was last year in the PRCA census. So if you times that by five in your career, you know, every year on year on year, that's 40K. That's, you know, a healthy um, way to go to a deposit. It does have an impact. And that was before we really got into the cost of living crisis. So any agency, even if you weren't on that list and you didn't um, take part, you're really considering it seriously. You know, if you think about the well the well-being and the welfare of your employees, it's really making a difference now that 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 um, um pay gap. And can I just add, when we, we started our ethnicity pay gap report, when we um, published it, we worked with a specialist, a pay gap specialist, 
And at that time, the, the, there was a white paper in circulation, but we've had a change of government since then, so or a change of leadership. But there was a white paper in circulation and we were heading for the end of 22 for it to become you know, mandatory. I think that's completely gone by the wayside. And I don't think anything much is going to happen. Seeing as our new Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has just said diversity and inclusion should put, be pushed to the back especially where the police are concerned. She doesn't think it's a priority. And was that, um, were they talking about making it mandatory for companies of a certain size, a certain turnover? I, I think they were trying to replicate what they did with gender. And I think it was quite small, wasn't it? 250? For businesses of 250 employees or above, they, they would make it mandatory. Don't quote me, but yes. It was whatever gender they were trying, I think they might have sized it down slightly. So this wasn't it for PR and comms. This was in corporate UK. So, but that seems to have got lost somewhere because it was 22 and then it was 23. And so, yeah, we're having a little delve into where it is now, but I think that white paper might be lost somewhere. Alongside a few other things that are being lost too. Mm. Anyway, um, in terms of, um, you know, thinking about agencies that are listening to um, this podcast and thinking, I, I really do want to make a difference. What would you say, this is what you should do next? So I have a handful of tips for, for business owners and those running agencies, um, a couple of really simple things. I think the first thing to keep in mind is having an ongoing program of activity around DNI. I think um, there's been a couple of studies I've seen recently where essentially finding conversations on DNI rely heavily on tragedy. Um, I think the, the clear example is the brutal murder of George Floyd. Um, suddenly everyone was up in arms, um, particularly in comms, everyone was yeah, very passionately talking about all these pledges they're going to make. Um, and in fact, a year after, the same study showed that conversations on DNI have fizzled out. So I would say the first thing to do is ensure there's consistency and it, these conversations don't just rely on tragedy. I think the second one is, is quite an important one. It's, it's, I suppose it's creating that open environment where staff from diverse backgrounds can, can sort of share their feelings um, and sort of input into the culture of an agency. Um, I think we've touched on this earlier. The really key point is not to put the onus on ethnic minority staff. Um, they have a lot of challenges they're perhaps already dealing with, and the onus should, shouldn't be on them. The leadership team should step up and, uh, and make this sort of stuff happen and bring it to play. Um, I think that's incredibly important. Um, and I suppose my final point, uh, or perhaps something to avoid sort of virtue signaling, Sometimes it's better to say nothing if you just want to get involved in a conversation because it's trending online, but your company values, your activity is not actually reflecting that. I think sometimes it's better to just stay quiet um, rather than virtue signaling um, because staff will pick up on that and people people do sort of talk amongst themselves um, if companies are making grand statements and in fact, behind the scenes, nothing's happening. Great advice. Barbara, what would you say? I'd say that um, it's not as difficult as it was before. It wasn't not as difficult as it was to, you know, to, to embark on this journey as it was in 2020. There's masses of information. There are books. There are these sorts of podcasts. There's enough information to, if you really are interested and serious about it, you know, you can make a start. And in our ethnicity pay gap guide, we say make a start where you are, wherever you are. So if you have to, it might mean working backwards because if it's all about people declaring you know, who and what they are, how they identify, but nobody will do that because the culture is not right, then clearly you need to start working where your culture is, as Shara says, making it open, make it welcoming so people feel safe enough to make their declarations. Then you can see, you know, where you are, 
what your your data is and what you need to do. And please, I definitely advise leaders not to divorce the data that you get from, you know, diversity and inclusion declarations from things like, you know, succession planning, policy, recruitment. They are connected. There's, you know, it's not a divorce. The whole point of doing all this is to insert everything you find, meld it into your operations. So all of this diversity data is to help you operate better, not just to have it to the side and make yourself feel great okay, once a year, you know, Black History Month, for instance. So remember, it's about operational excellence, and this will help you perform better. And my last point would be, don't forget about sustainability, because it is a sustainability issue, because at some point... You know, the makeup of our industry is how it is now. It's changing slowly, but it will change. And do you want to be that dinosaur who has nobody wants to come and work for you? Your clients are not really getting the money because everybody looks differently. They're thinking differently. They have a more diverse workforce and you've lost all the cash you had. You've lost because you didn't move you know, with the times. And to that point of moving with the times, how much do you feel um, clients are really kind of expecting their agencies to step forward. I mean, I think FTSEs are now doing quite a lot of work, I think, at an engagement level with agencies in terms of really wanting to understand their data and practices. Is that potentially where we, we may see more of the pull, as it were, in terms of change? I, I personally think that often agency leaders forget that their clients have their own ecosystem in terms of they are not organization, they employ people, they'll have, you know, different diverse groups or not. So I think even if they're not explicitly saying agency, I need you to be more diverse, look at what your clients are doing. Just have a quick, you know, sneaky peek at what they're doing in terms of groups, in terms of trying to be more diverse, in terms of recruitment. And it's speaking to you, you know, it doesn't have to be you know, spelled out in bright letters. So I think absolutely. And if and if you you're working with an organization and you're really genuine, I don't think it's too risky to talk to have that conversation with clients. So you know, this is a direction we are moving as an agency. Can we support you in that way? Can we advise you in that way? Or can we bring someone in to make sure, you know, we keep our relationship on a par because we're heading towards being more open and psychologically safe. We'd like, you know, to keep on doing business but to to in, enjoy that kind of relationship with each other. And Barbara, can I ask you on that point whether, in your experience, client-side organisations are more advanced than agencies or less advanced than agencies on, the, on these sort of things, or is there no particular pattern? I don't think there's a particular pattern. It does come down to the leadership. It does come to how enlightened the leadership is. I work for one comms team in-house who are known for being advocates, who are known for being you know, out there, and and it was absolutely dreadful inside the culture. The leader, the leader got it right, but it hadn't, you know, trickled down, if you like, to the, his SLT. So I think, and I went in there thinking, oh, this is the sector where it's going to be great. Not necessarily. It absolutely depends on leaders. But having, you know, just to reiterate, there's so much information out there. There really is. There's no excuse for you not knowing, you know, what's the problem, what are the issues. It's really out there if you choose to look. It does come back down to choice. Shiraz, did you have a, a view on the client agency difference in this respect? For me, it's been a, it's been a mixture, really. I've had similar experiences on both sides. Now I'm on brand side. Um, my expectation of my agencies is to people to be working with us from a breadth of backgrounds and from all walks of life. Um, and it, it's it's wild actually. Even on agency side, when I was there was a couple of clients I challenged on how they were communicating around following the murder of George Floyd. And some of them would just look look at me absolutely blankly. Um, so quick to to jump in and make grand statements and 
big gestures on social media, but very self mark and doing anything of actual substance, um, which can be which can be quite harmful. Actually, it's one of the few times in my career where I asked to be moved off a brand, um, which for me was my dream brand to work with growing up. Um, and it, it is heartbreaking. Um, and, and I think and I really hope those that are listening um, to this podcast brand side are hopefully up for having a conversation with their agency partners about like initiatives like this and about sharing um, like race pay gap data with PR week or, or looking at how diverse their team is. Cause it's incredibly important where we have such an important function in society as comms professionals, we're communicating to mass audience, which is beautifully diverse. And if it's the same group of people doing the same stuff, it's just not going to be useful or relevant at all. And I think we're just going to keep falling out of touch. And and I think as an industry, we're way better than that. Thank you so much, guys, for all the work you've done with PR Week on this. And I hope this is a, a way we can continue working together in the future. Maybe we can have this conversation again after the um, the PRCA census, which should throw up some new figures in hopefully a few weeks' time. So, um Yes, thank you so much for your time and contribution. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all. It was a pleasure to be here. Really appreciate PR Week giving us a platform. It means the world. Absolutely. So now let's reveal this week's top and flop. Danny, to you first for the top. I'm afraid it's a tennis one again, Frankie. Which, you surprised uh, me. <laughs> uh, but I think even non-tennis fans will have uh, appreciated this one. It was Roger Federer's retirement, which as you may have noticed, took place the previous weekend, last weekend. And um, it essentially got blanket coverage uh, in lots of ways across all of media, starting with some photos of himself, um, Rafael Nadal, uh, Djokovic and Andy Murray all going out for dinner in black tie in London. They looked amazing. <laughs> it was a great photo and it appeared on the front of the Times and uh, Later on the front of the Sunday Times, the night after um, Roger Federer's retirement, there was a picture of him and Rafa Nadal holding hands, crying their eyes out. My, my point is that Roger Federer is not only a great tennis player, he's proven himself over many years to be a brilliant communicator. People like him and he's good for tennis and he's good for sport. Um, the other thing that Roger Federer is, is a marketing genius. He earned more than almost any other sports person in the world last year without even playing tennis, uh, simply by all his link-ups and all his ventures. And by the way, he retired through the Lever Cup, which he partly owns. So he's invested in his own tournament. This is how smart he is as a marketer and a communicator. And um, I just think as sports people go, as business people go, this guy's good at comms. It's amazing, isn't it? When you think about us growing up watching tennis, when we had the John McEnroe's of this world and the kind of image of tennis that we, that we watched there, Freda has definitely turned that that image around. And and I think the camaraderie, therefore, with fellow tennis players, where they used to be maybe much more competitive, was actually really wonderful to watch. There was a piece in one of the papers today which said that... Uh, Federer and Nadal proved that nice guys can come first. And I think that's, you're right, that people like McEnroe and Connors and that era, they were seen as tough and unpleasant characters who wanted to win. Whereas now it seems you can win and still be nice and charming. Yeah, absolutely. 
So to this week's flop, I think it's been pretty hard to ignore um, Holly and Philgate. Have you been following this, Danny? Uh, very closely. <laughs> Um, it's obviously been a story that's just escalated um, since the uh, Queen's funeral um, last week. And I think it's just shocked many ha- how far it's actually gone. Um, the story was obviously about Holly and Phil um, seeing the Queen uh, lying in state and questions over whether you know it was okay that they were there under media accreditation or if actually they had jumped the queue. And I think obviously... On the back of David Beckham queuing for many hours and Susanna Reid queuing with her mother, it was um it's it's obviously landed very, very badly with the public. But I think what's now really shocked people is that is the level that it's gotten to. Um, you know, with petitions signed for them, you know, by thousands of people, um, for them to resign and so forth. It just feels like it's got really out of hand. And and even as I'm here now, I'm reading that um Labour Deputy Leader Angela Rayner is worried about Holly and Phil because it's actually really got quite nasty now. And I think it just shows how social media can just erupt and create that level of cancel culture, um, which is just extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And Frankie, what is it that um, Holly and Phil have done wrong, do you think? Well, I think that is the question. Um, you know, typically, if you feel that you've done something wrong, you would apologise. And, and then normally that would calm down the situation and then you'd hope to move on. I think the debate is, have they done something wrong or not? In some reports, you read that there was a separate media area. um, And it actually, I think if you watch the TikTok video that I think was shared, it shows Holly and Phil actually sort of walking past the queue as if, you know, they had had some sort of special um, rights given to them to actually jump the queue. So... I believe um, that they wanted to apologise, and I think ITV pulled them back from that. Actually, so mm. I think I think the wealth of emotion that's being felt is is because, you know, there's the debate around was it the right thing or not the right thing to do, and I think because that is still not completely clarified and therefore apologised about that it's escalated in the way that it has. Yeah, it's an interesting case study, isn't it? Because any public figure who finds themselves in the eye of a storm needs to know how to handle it and whether or not they should apologise or whether they should just keep quiet and hopefully let it blow over, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And the reason it's not blowing over is probably because of that that fact that that apology hasn't necessarily been there. So, um, but I, I do think, you know, there's, there's lots of coverage also around sort of the, the be kind sentiment that this is possibly getting, you know, out of hand. And is it okay to treat any human being like this? Because it's pretty vicious. So that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed listening and we look forward to you joining us next time. 